Hello, and welcome to Monument Biography, a series where we explore how every place can come to take on different meanings for different people, with one space living multiple lives. I'm Emily Newmeyer. episode, we take an in-depth look at the history of Fairfield Hills Hospital in Newtown, Connecticut. The site was built in 1931 as a psychiatric hospital and functioned as such until 1995. It then remained unoccupied until 2005 when the town bought the property from the state and tore down several of the hospital's more derelict buildings and refurbished or rebuilt others. Producer Michael Lally investigates the early years of the hospital, the decade of abandonment that drew urban explorers and ghost hunters, and finally contemporary debates about the town's master plan for the site. Through the story of Fairfield Hills, we consider how a community negotiates and experiences the ghosts of a monument's troubled past. Michael has the story. Against the rustling leaves of fallen New England, I walk up the road toward a collection of brick buildings. This exact walk mimics one I performed daily from my high school, Newtown High School, to the Newtown Youth Academy. The road on which I walk was constructed in the 1990s after these brick buildings, standing amongst the hills as sterile monoliths, were abandoned and before the town took control of the site. The people who inhabited the site which I speak of that I am standing in front of, would have traveled here on a path similar to the one I took from school, albeit their emotions would have been much different. Within these brick buildings, thousands of psychiatric patients resided, both voluntarily and involuntarily. Here houses the remains of Fairfield Hills Hospital, and this is the story of what has become of it. My personal interaction with the site is like many others from the town. We played baseball, soccer, softball, and lacrosse there in our youths, met with friends, and took walks around the campus. This was a role of the hospital for town residents for the life of the site. There were baseball fields on the campus during its tenure as a hospital, just as there are now. And high school students drove by the buildings daily to go to school, just as I had done. In this podcast, we will be joined by several residents of Newtown, including First Selectman Dan Rosenthal. If you're not familiar with New England towns, First Selectman is essentially the mayor. Dan has lived in Newtown for most, if not his entire life. His father was the first selectman, as well as his grandfather, making him third generation. We'll also be joined by Robert Linden, who grew up in Newtown the same time I grew up in Newtown, and he moved out to New York City, and during COVID, he moved back, and he will be our source for how Newtown has shifted and changed, especially this year when COVID hit, and how he has utilized the the site as a recreational, also a work site. Fairfield Hills Hospital was originally called 
Fairfield State Hospital. The residents of Newtown still refer to it as Fairfield Hills. It was built in 1931 by architect Walter Crabtree Sr. on the land of Dr. Roy Leake. The campus stretched for over 700 acres and contained 16 brick buildings. Fairfield Hills originally was founded to reduce stress on other psychiatric hospitals in the state. This would create a space that could specialize in the treatment of patients with serious mental disorders. The patients were mixed between those who were voluntarily and involuntarily admitted, and buildings were segregated as such, with those involuntarily admitted often remaining for a longer period of time. Walter Crabtree constructed these buildings in what is known as a cottage plan, in particular the early cottage plan. Before this, psychiatric institutions in the United States were predominantly designed in what is known as the Kirkbride plan. This consisted of a single building instead of the many buildings we see at Fairfield Hills, quite long and veers out in a V shape. This allows for adequate observation of the patients. The cottage plan, meanwhile, consists of several brick buildings, often only two or three stories tall, although some in Fairfield Hills are quite larger, so you still see some of that Kirkbride influence. Several brick buildings that are on a campus, and it's supposed to feel more like a college with manicured lawns and water features and decor, etc. The cottage plan called for multiple buildings because it was argued that they are better suited for, quote, noisy and violent patients. These buildings would often have tunnels connecting them, especially Fairfield Hills and other institutions around New England, as they would enable easy transfer of patients against harsh winters. As I mentioned, they're often made of brick, stone, and slate. The general plot of the campus is relatively similar throughout cottage plan sites. Toward the entrance of the campus was the administration building, and in the center were the communal buildings, such as the gym, the cafeteria, maybe the hospital as well, and the patient resident buildings would encircle these plans. The design was enacted to ensure no dark corners or quote-unquote cubby holes, so therefore every inch of the hospital is visible. As important as it is to talk about the buildings of Fairfield Hills, it's more important to talk about those who were living there. The town of Newtown and the psychiatric hospital of Fairfield Hills coexisted with one another for the better part of the 20th century, and it's safe to say that the residents of one were in constant interaction with the residents of the other. Joining me is First Selectman Dan Rosenthal, who discusses how Fairfield Hills as a hospital would have interacted with the residents of the town. Fairfield Hills was a community in and of itself. It was a, you know, it was it was a self-sustaining community. It was several farms in the 1930s that the, that the state consolidated here. But if you look at for a long time, a lot of the population in Newtown was here, right? I mean, it was not Newtown was sparsely populated, but Fairfield Hills. There was a million square feet of space up here at its peak. You had the, the buildings, now the horse guard. I mean, they grew their own food. They had their own power plant that generated all the steam to power all these buildings, generated some electricity for the buildings. Um, so it would, but it, but it was a, it was a community. I mean, as a kid, I used to come and, you know, we played soccer out on the field here, that Newtown soccer used that field. And a lot of the residents on the campus would come out and have either chairs or blankets, and they would come and 
sit while we were playing soccer and watch. So it was a, it was unquestionably a community up here, you know, naturally because people were here and confined to this space. You'd run into some of the doctors at different town events, but you wouldn't, you know, the residents were basically here on the campus. Dan reminds us that the hospital during its operation was essentially Newtown. And though the hospital acted essentially as its own community with separate sewer and power plant, there was still this interaction occurring with the town itself. The stories that Dan recounts, along with my general description of the buildings and the site itself, really hides what occurred behind these walls. The numbers of patients and personnel varied by year. Take 1959 as an example. There were 1,715 new admitted patients. Some years had over 4,000, with 1,228 discharged and 427 deaths. Unfortunately, all patient records, and therefore much of the archives, are sealed off to me as I'm not a licensed medical doctor. However, testimonials from former patients are not, and we can read about what treatments, and I put those in quotes, occurred at the hospital. These included insulin shock therapy, for those uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia. Insulin shock therapy is is a treatment in which patients were injected with large doses of insulin to induce comas. The injections were administered six days a week for two months at a time, and seizures would often occur before the comas. It was quite common for patients undertaking this procedure to experience about 50 of these episodes, these seizures and then comas, across the two months argued that the thought process was that epilepsy and schizophrenia could not occur in the same patient. Along with insulin shock therapy, more common therapies were practiced, including electroshock therapy and frontal lobotomy. Patients were escorted through narrow tunnels for these procedures and to the hospitals as well. And if they did not survive these procedures or if they died for other reasons, there was an on-site morgue to deal with the high fatality rate. In our sample year, it was over 10%. Nurse testimonials state that the hospital was mismanaged, understaffed, and irresponsible. The individual departments functioned independently from one another, so there was not much communication going on between one doctor to another and one nurse to another. And nurses described themselves as glorified custodians. In 1946, 406 new personnel were hired and 311 left or were fired, and that's a high turnover rate. This is not just indicative of this one year, it's a larger trend that exists throughout the history of the hospital. The numbers of hirees aren't just nurses and just hospital workers. We also remember have people working in the factory and on the farms across the street. We have cooks, groundspeople, and sometimes even tour guides. As I was leaving, Dan actually mentioned that high school students would take field trips to the hospital to watch the patients as a scared straight program so they, quote, do not end up like them one day, end quote. Because of deinstitutionalization, the hospital was closed in 1995, and the patients were moved to other hospitals in the state, many of them Connecticut Valley Hospital. The buildings slowly deteriorated, crumbling, from age and weathering, as Dan explains. So some of these buildings haven't been heated in in, in as much time. So they've been slowly deteriorating. They were made so well that if you go in them, you're still like, wow, they're still like solid. 
concrete floors, walls, terrazzo flooring, and everything else. But, you know, the roofs leak. We're, we're kind of an inflection point where I think we either commit to some sort of mixed-use way forward or we're probably, again, leveling the campus and just creating more of uh, more open space up here. From here begins the establishment of Fairfield Hills as a myth, buildings standing derelict in a state where urban explorers can finally enter their hollowed exteriors. The myth of Fairfield Hills certainly existed during his tenure as a hospital, as Dan explains. I remember as a kid, we'd be, I grew up on Main Street, and the horn would sound, and it was a fire alarm, and you'd be like, and you know, you hear it all over town. Because they had their own fire trucks. They, had, they literally were a self-contained. So I remember this horn going off and my friend's mother saying, everybody's got to come inside. But it was, it was, a, it was a fire alarm. So yeah. this big like foghorn like thing that would sound all over town. In the present day, urban explorers, however, have been spurned on in the hope of catching ghosts or paranormal activity on camera. In one example, Fairfield Hills was featured as the location of episode two in season one of MTV's Fear, airing in 2000. While many of the residents of the town feel uneasy about the buildings, especially knowing their history and what occurred inside them, and some do believe that they are haunted, no one that I interviewed had any real specifics of actual ghosts or ghost names. Some heard a noise, but those who heard a noise were in the buildings where they, there could be other people in there as well. It's a little unfortunate that many consider the paranormal to be the most important or interesting part of Fairfield Hills. Uh, this includes leading newspapers and tabloids remarking, where will the ghosts go if these buildings are torn down? Because really, to the residents, this discussion of ghosts and the paranormal is more of a distraction from the ability to complete an interaction with the site. The perpetuation of these myths seem to serve as a double-edged sword for Newtown, as it definitely dissuades some from getting close to the buildings because of these ghosts, but also persuades many to enter the buildings in the hopes of finding them. In reality, it's the architecture and the history of the buildings that should be serving these roles and not the ghosts. Those being stopped from entering due to actual threats such as crumbly interiors and asbestos. And those wishing to enter, wanting to see the lost memories of those who, who resided there and graffiti by others who, who went in. Now, urban explorers do still exist. They hope to get the glimpse of these rooms that held forgotten patients. Signs on the campus's walls lead potential explorers into the buildings, pointing them in the right directions. And ironically, while the buildings were always constructed to be visible from all parts, the attempts of these urban explorers are wildly successful. It was a pastime for high schoolers to enter in these buildings, and YouTube is littered with poorly shot iPhone videos of the interiors. While I was visiting, actually, this past fall, I walked around the campus and I actually witnessed several people breaking out of one of the buildings. I wanted to get the feel of what these explorers experience in these buildings, and more importantly, the tunnels, because most of the tunnels have been barricaded off or, or removed. I was quite interested in this. I personally did not go into any of the tunnels or the buildings, but I did receive a quote from Dan, who 
legally entered in his role as the first selectman. First of all, it's all dark, right? We don't need power in buildings. So you're down in this dank kind of tunnel, and, you know, there's water kind of just kind of running down. The, it pitches down slowly and then comes back up, almost like you're going under the Chesapeake Bay. It goes down and up. And there's solid concrete, and when you're walking, it, there's like a three-second delay in your footsteps. So it's really because of the acoustics. So it's really creepy because you'll be walking, and then you'll hear like you're up ahead. So it gives you that kind of eerie feeling that it's really your own footsteps. We'll be right back. We were actually warned growing up not to interact with these buildings. There are signs on them that say, do not enter, stay 15 feet away from these buildings. Robert Linden, a resident who grew up in the town during the time in which these buildings were in disuse, uh, explains the warnings that he was given as a child. Our parents would always say, stay away from the buildings. You know, we would have time between games. We would have, sometimes you'd be there for siblings games or whatever else. And it was basically just like, stay away from these buildings. Don't go inside. You never know what's in there. And there are probably adult reasons why to not go into these places. But parents would say something like, oh, it's haunted. Or, oh, there, it used to be a mental institution. And there could be people in there. Just something, something, you know, parents would make up to keep you away from the areas. The stories, though, of these buildings do not stop the town residents from enjoying the site in the present day. As stated, the Newtown Youth Academy, which includes two field houses, a weight room, gym, and a small cafe, has introduced a center for recreational activity. And though baseball fields existed on the property prior, several more have been added in recent years, combined with further soccer, tennis courts, centralizing the town's youth sport academy in one site. Additionally, the town hall was moved to the campus and renamed the Municipal Center. This was in the hope that the official presence would encourage business and residential development in the future. Walking paths curated by the town around the campus are always filled with people on the weekends, and even during the week you still pass an occasional jogger or dog walker. Quite a lot of people, you know, younger people, including my sister, she would play a few soccer games and basketball games there. I think she was maybe running track at one point, maybe, and she had, so it really felt like it was starting to become more of a central location for sports, especially in the winter. The older buildings that are not renovated are forbidden from entry due to asbestos and crumbling architecture. However, town residents can still communicate with them. Residents enjoy watching the demolition of the structures when they occur to take a rare glimpse as to what exists inside. Additionally, using them as backdrops, visitors form gatherings, such as a motor and car show, which you hear right now in the background. Behind these buildings, music was blaring, with families sitting under canopies and lawn chairs, watching and relaxing on this October afternoon. During the week, this show that you hear is replaced by a farmer's market, which Robert discusses. A few interesting things have begun, maybe more so in recent times. There's a farmer's market that is on the campus and meets every Tuesday for 
spring, summer, fall. And I've actually gone there a few times. It's actually really lovely, I would say. The food's great and the people are just enjoying a nice steady breeze in the outdoors. People will like get food from the farmer's market and will just congregate on a field and enjoy whatever they bought. And this is basically right around these buildings. There are really nice fields, but they're basically the front and back lawns of these abandoned asylums. Though in some cases, the uses of these sites are due mostly to the availability of a large open and public space centrally located in town. In other cases, the interaction can only exist at Fairfield Hills. A small graveyard and haunted house were located in a field off the side of the community center when I visited a week or two before Halloween. This was located next to an overgrown field, which was the site of the morgue. The town agreed that the morgue should not be built over and should remain as a wild land of sorts. It is either ironic or intentional that the, the graveyard for this haunted house is next to the site of the former morgue. Artists received grants by the town to portray work on the edifices of several of the structures, most notably several duplexes that used to house doctors and nurses. These are gorgeous works of art, but they contrast heavily with the dilapidated roofs of these buildings, many of which are not refurbished at all. Despite the similarity in the new and old building's architecture, there is still a clear divide between old and new. The renovation of a small duplex costs about $1 million. And the larger buildings, the ones that used to house the patients or the hospital itself, uh, costs on average 25 to $30 million to renovate. Town residents appear mixed on the issue of whether the buildings should be kept or new ones erected in their place. I spoke to town residents about their views on keeping the old buildings versus tearing them down and refurbishing them. We will hear once again from Robert Linden and Dan, and we'll also hear from my own mother. I think it's the, the only remaining part of the asylum left are the buildings themselves. As soon as they're gone, I think it's going to be viewed maybe very differently. I don't know if by other people, but I will definitely view it differently as kind of an, really the center of Newtown and Newtown Recreation. I think right now the buildings are probably holding it back from having that sort of title. I feel like the old buildings don't really belong there. I think like a, an isolated campus, like maybe turn into a museum or something like that, or turn into some historical site would be pretty awesome. But I just feel like this doesn't really, if you drive down the road, when you're heading down to exit 11 on 84, which we often do to go to like Hartford to the airport or whatever, Bradley, you go by the campus and it's not like you see the NYA as you're driving by, that's like in the back. It's actually the Fairfield Hills Asylum old buildings that are the ones up close to the road and near the soccer fields. It really just doesn't seem appropriate to have it, you know? It just, if, if it were the other way around, like I was saying, if, the, if they were kind of in the backdrop and the NYA was closer up front, I think it would be appealing to people driving by. But this orientation, I don't feel like the buildings really belong so much anymore. So it was always like, in my opinion, the campus, the, the buildings that used to comprise the, uh, the asylum, they were kind of an eyesore in my opinion, and even to this day I'm like wondering why they're still around. I guess it's maybe a landmark, um, but it just always seems kind of like a drawback to having activities on the campus or showing a pretty face for the town essentially, because it's such a commonly used space. My ambition is to try to reuse these buildings, and I'm supportive of the idea of 
some mix of housing with, with commercial. It's the only way that we get these buildings reused. Again, most all the commercial developers have said that absent putting some people here, the commercial won't follow. I mean, I think that the fear on the housing side, everyone says it's going to change Fairfield Hills forever. I don't see it that way. Um, but again, I don't begrudge people to do. I think it's kind of a visceral reaction people have. And that's why, to some extent, it doesn't matter what I say or what information that the town puts out there. Some people are like, I just want it to be open space. I think to the extent possible, they should renovate them. I mean, I totally understand that. A lot of times it will cost less to tear them down and build new. But if it's a wash or if there's any way they could save them safely, I, I think that's the way to do it to maintain the historic factor. And then you have some new and some old and it makes it more of an eclectic site and it also keeps some form of the history of the property as well. I had heard from my mother that there was a survey on the 2020 election ballot that had asked about Fairfield Hills and what residents believe should be done with it. And I followed up with Dan on this survey. The survey basically said that it was strongly against housing here. About 1,800 people filled it out. It was strongly against housing, but the same number, almost the same number of folks that were strongly against housing also said, don't spend any money up there. And you can't, sort of, the two don't, the two are in conflict. We shall finish off with Fairfield Hills 2020. COVID hit the town just as any other in the United States, and the NYA and the community center suffered as not many people were going to the gym or the pool. However, as a premier outdoor spot in town, the campus itself thrived, with many utilizing the space in breaks from work, including someone like Robert Linden, who left Manhattan to come back to his hometown, and my mother, Marion Lally. She decided to go back to Fairfield Hills and take daily walks. Uh, the walking trails have seen huge numbers of people. So we kept that open right through the pandemic. So we have seen trail use here go through the roof during COVID. There's also some really nice hiking on the campus as well. There are some trails that loop around and kind of go deeper behind like the Newtown Youth Academy and glider baseball fields and stuff like that. It's more so when you're walking on the paths that connect to it that basically comprise like the, the arteries and veins of the whole campus is when you kind of get closer to the buildings and right up close to them. So I feel like the community really just kind of lives around it and it's almost like the buildings themselves are fairly ignored. They're just there and people deal with it, people live with it. It's doesn't really come up in conversation when I'm around there anymore. It's just the fact of being a resident. In April of this year, the campus saw the first commercial site open, uh, New Asylum Brewing Company. This company was in part created by Mark Tambasio, who owns an Italian restaurant in town. The town paid for the roof and hooked up the utilities for the building, while the investors spent $900,000 refurbishing the actual building. Some have claimed that success of the brewery is due in part to Mark already having an established clientele from his other restaurant. The ability to take an advantage of the open spaces on the campus to serve food rather than the just being limited to the restaurant and Connecticut's virtually non-existent open container laws. 
Their Keystone beer is named Counting the Days. The, the can itself portrays a cupola, which is seen on many of the buildings, with a hop above. Surrounding this are hatch marks in the can that are reminiscent of what a prisoner would write on a wall when they are trapped, raiding in futility until their release. A photo of this can is featured on their company's website, which portrays the beer in the foreground against the doctor's quarters in the background. It seems intentional that the name was chosen with Fairfield Hills in mind, and certainly that's what the residents believe as well. I could not in good conscience, though, purchase this beer as it seemed a little too on the nose for me, almost as if it was poking fun at the patients and the history of the hospital. I instead brought home another selection, uh, Therapy Time. It was described as a pale ale. I was pleasantly surprised by the abundance of hops. It required a slow sip to relish the bitterness of this beer, and it paired really nicely with a basil margarita pizza. The design of the can, though, is not quite as savory as taste. It has a Warschblot test surrounding it. I tried to be unbiased throughout this episode, but clearly my opinion comes out here, as I was slightly appalled at the name of these beers concerning the history of the site. I asked others about the name and most thought that the name really didn't bother them. The hospital is seen so far in the past and they acknowledge that it's more of a pun of the history of the site rather than a dig at the patients. Fairfield Hills, the New Asylum, the NYA, these, the, the hospital, these are all not unique to Newtown. There are psychiatric institutions elsewhere. Dan was telling me that he was inspired by other psychiatric institutions that have been turned into malls, turned into uh, open spaces, turned into uh, residential areas, and saw how those worked before he and his father before him went off and designed the plan or the potential plans for Fairfield Hills. The reason why I chose this site and specifically to speak about during this podcast was really due to the personal connection I had with it and more importantly the personal connection I had with the town of Newtown uh, to see this great kind of commercial residential municipal site spoken about in a positive light and talk about the interaction rather than just oh this was a psychiatric hospital that did a lot of terrible things which we should acknowledge, there's no acknowledgement of that, first of all, on the campus. I want to point that out. Nowhere on the campus does it say this was a hospital. So it's kind of buried away. But I think, I, I think in other communities, that would be an issue. I, I really do. I really think that, you know, you should acknowledge that this was a hospital. However, Newtown is such a specific case. If you think about the history of the town itself in 2012, we had the uh, Sandy Hook school shooting. I was in high school during that time. I know many of the um, families that were directly impacted. And it, it, that's kind of put the town on the map. And anytime you say you're from Newtown in conversation, that's immediately what people think of. This was sort of an attempt to try to stray away from that and to talk about something else, this, this newer development and the other side of Newtown that is not just this tragedy. 
This has been an episode of Monument Biography. To learn more, visit us online at stellaonline.art. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. A special thank you to our guests, Dan Rosenthal, Robert Linden, and Marianne Lally. Our theme music is by Emily DeWolfson. Additional music by Michael Lally and Mystery Mammal. This episode was produced and edited by Michael Lally and me, Emily Neumeyer. Our thanks to Temple University and especially Katie Gagenheimer for their support. The production team's home base is the Tyler School of Art and Architecture in beautiful downtown Philadelphia. That's it for now. Until next time, take care.